Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Terrence Howard. My mother was the cornerstone of our family. She shaped me as an actor, a musician, as a human being. So when she was diagnosed with colon cancer, it was like our whole family got cancer. And she died when she was only 56, so this is personal. Now hopefully my heartbreak is your wake-up call. Colorectal cancer is the second leading cancer killer, but you can prevent this disease. Screening finds precancerous polyps so that they can be removed before they turn into cancer. I've been screened. If you think that you're at an increased risk like I am, ask your doctor when to start screening. And if you're 50 or older, get screened. I don't have my mother anymore. So please, do everything that you can to stay around for yourself and for your family. Screening saves lives. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. Um, thank you guys for listening to the show. We're past 1.3 million downloads of the podcast. I am just so grateful for that, and I'm glad that you're enjoying the show. I haven't done the show in a minute, but uh, I want to thank you just for supporting the show even when the show wasn't uh, going on regularly. Uh, today, I have a wonderful author, professor, uh, student of history about African-American women. Um, she's associate professor and associate chair of African and African-American diaspora studies, at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, she received her MA and PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. Um, she already has an award-winning book called Colored Amazons, Crime, Violence, and Black Women in the City of Brotherly Love, uh, 1880 to 1910. But today we are speaking about her new book, Hannah Mary Tabs and the Disembodied Torso. Yes, very odd title, right? Very odd title. But trust me, you will want to listen to the rest of this interview and also pick up a copy of the book. I just want to let you know you can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys, and you can become a fan on Facebook. Just look up Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And also, I'm on Instagram. Check me out. Lots of cool pictures. Um, maybe if you tag me in a photo, you might win something. You guys know I give away tickets to movies and dinners and books and all sorts of things. So definitely follow one of those venues. Uh, good morning, uh, Callie. Thank you for joining me. Uh, good morning, Joy. Thanks so much for having me. So what in the world? Disembodied torso? Like, do I, does somebody want to pick that up? I mean, is it a horror story? Talk to the audience just a little bit about what's going on here with Hannah Mary Tabs and a disembodied torso. <laughs> sure. No, thanks so much again for this opportunity. Yeah, this is a case that I actually stumbled across when I was doing research for my first book, which was looking at the experiences of black women in Philadelphia's justice system. And once I sort of picked up this scrapbook at East, about, from Eastern State Penitentiary 
and I had these news clippings about this murder and dismemberment, this love triangle that took place in the Seventh Ward, which was the heart of Philadelphia's black community, with this black woman, Hannah Mary Tabbs, at the center of it. I just, I could not put it down. Um, I was enthralled from start to finish. I knew it deserved its own book. It was a story that just, it had to be told. She seems almost a bigger-than-life character. Like, is it for real? Because we've been so inundated with a certain type of black woman uh, during that time period. You know, who could possibly exist during that time period? You know, they were um, becoming, you know, getting out of slavery, um, you know, just uh, the sidekick of the man. Um, They were the servant. They were the cook. They were the mammy. They were the nanny to the children. Um, these are the different images that we have of black women in the 1800s. We don't have images of black women possibly being murderers or cheating on her husband. That's a little slippery slope. Now, right, why did right. you, I mean, in, in, you, uh, in your reading about you, it was said that people discourage you. Even your, you know, other, you know, historians were like, what are you right. doing? Why do you want to tell this story? Talk about that right. a little bit, why people discourage right. you. So I think, it, and this is something I have with my first book, too. You know, whenever, you know, for black people, we're so often under attack, right? There are all these racist stereotypes about black folks and black women, particularly around issues like crime and violence. So the Venus folks who heard that I was sort of interested in researching these topics, there was real concern about ways that it could be used against the black community. So I understand where people are coming from with that, and I know that those fears have real merit, right? You know, we no one is sort of crazy for being concerned about how a book on history of, of black women in the criminal justice system might be, you know, might contribute to racism or racist stereotypes. Um, so that was a large part of the concern. Um, one of the things I tried to do certainly with the first book to help kind of push back against that is to sort of remind folks that, you know, a big part of the reason that we do black history is to speak to the current conditions of black people and to be a part of this project that's about kind of black liberation overall. And so we have this issue of, you know, mass incarceration and these little known facts like black women were actually more disproportionately represented in prison than black men. And that has a a history that lasts right up until, you know, the beginning part of the 21st century. So I try to explain it. If we don't talk about, look at those histories, our our research is not going to be able to to be a beacon for today. So that was sort of some of the things I used to to get folks to calm down about it. And then with Hannah Mary Tabbs, I also felt like, you know, we only have one type of black woman that we study in history, right? It's a woman who's very respectable, who's committed to, like, family and social uplift, and we need mm-hmm. those histories. They're important. But also, there are other types of experiences that we have to explore and we need to make room for, because for me, that's also an important affirmation of our overall humanity, right? Black people are humans and with all the flaws and warts and everything else that that encompasses. We should not have to be angels or clean to merit scholarly attention. No, I definitely agree. And one of the points that you mentioned about the mass incarceration, um, I had um, Dr. Khalil Gibran Muhammad on here, and he was talking yes. about his book, The uh, Condemnation of Blackness. 
And what people Mm -hmm. don't realize is that this mass incarceration, this idea that, you know, crime equals blackness um, is started before today. You know, it's been going on for a long, long time. It didn't just all of a sudden happen. And I think, like you said, it merits research to show the light, like, okay, this is not today. This is not just because of today's reasons. It's been going on for, for you know, a long time. And so why is that the case? And in your book, you bring up issues of what we call race. We know race is a construct, but the right. idea, like the character that she's, uh, I guess, the other character is Wilson. There's a man mm-hmm. in the book who actually ends up spending quite a long time in jail, um, but right. he's mixed. He almost could pass mm-hmm. for white. Right. And um, in the story, that's a really that's a really interesting story in and of itself. How the people of the community take him, or how they they, they can't take him. They're they're like scared of him, or they're like thinking he's kind of snobbish, or he doesn't care. Then there's all these you know comments that maybe he's lazy, but then he's industrious. It's just crazy. It's almost like a soap opera, you know? Right, right. I mean, right. His story. So, right, so in the story, right, Tabs is involved, you know, in this, this, you know, relationship. And then with respect to what you're talking about with Khalil's most important work is that, right, these issues around race and sort of, you know, biased justice have been with us really since the start of the, the legal system in the colonies, in the country, and, and right up through today. And so during this time period, one of the things that was horrifying for me with the case was to see certain issues like racial profiling, the brutality of black prisoners once they're in custody, the way that police coerce sort of quote-unquote confessions from folks. So when she gets, you know, arrested and, and interrogated in custody, you know, after a while she kind of breaks and blames it on this guy, right, George Wilson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's this mixed, you know, this mixed um you know, African-American, but he, he basically could pass for white. And so at this particular moment in time, you know, miscegenation is becoming a huge concern. It's after slavery. And we know that mixed black folks and folks who can pass for white have been in this country practically since the beginning. But most of them were sort of regulated by slavery. They're on plantations. People knew who they were. They couldn't sort of easily kind of mix in with white society. But mm-hmm. after slavery and you have sort of mobility, people leaving the South, going into cities where there's a lot more anonymity, they start to have these concerns about infiltration. And so Wilson exists for them in some respects as kind of, you know, the sum of a lot of these fears and concerns about miscegenation, right? It's this sort of taboo intermixing to begin with, which ultimately threatens white supremacy because it means that, like, that the that the groups can mix it all means that whiteness is not separate or above blackness. Yeah, they don't like and that it, at all, you know. Well, another thing is that in the story you mentioned that Hannah might be mulatto, but then they were saying she was dark. There were different stories about who she was and how she looked in terms of her skin tone. And another thing with the skin tones is the actual torso. In terms of the right. title, we're talking about a disembodied torso. Nobody right. knew what the race, ethnicity was this person's body. Like, who was it? And they had right. no scientific way, really, to say this African-American, this is, somebody thought it was a Chinaman, and all these right. different stories that they were making up. Yeah, sure. you know, um, and and then uh, what is interesting is I, I talked to you when we were right before the show, because I think of all these ethnical issues 
Um, the, the trial, the, the case went to trial, and it lasted for six months. Because I'm like, these are black people, no matter what. You got one drop, you're black people. Why right. did it take them six? Why do you think they allowed this to go on and uh, for six months have, a, you know, the, the jury and all this? Why do you think that happened? You know, I think so. It was, an, it was an unusual case from start to finish, and I think it was just one of these cases that landed on the axis of all these critical issues that were in flux at the time. So just like you said, you know, the fact that this torso kind of surfaces and, you know, it's his headless, limbless torso, they can't figure out it's his race, and that contributed to this sort of huge anxiety, right? They're already concerned about miscegenation and infiltration. There's this moment where they really want a hard and fast line, right? Who's white and who is not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they were concerned that it was a white man, and in which case if something horrible happened to a white man, the police took that really seriously. So that's how the case sort of gained momentum. And also I think they wanted to really put a point on that, that you know, to end the question also. So yeah. it's those that really kind of drive them, and the case becomes this sort of media sensation. So once it that does, it's crazy. All the right. newspapers are like they're following them like you know paparazzi. They have to take them outside <laughs> doors, like, and and then right. with, uh, Wilson, they actually trying to uh, parade him around like you know he's right. the king, and you know he they already kind of sentenced him before the jury had made a decision I, or the I judge had made a decision. Up. You know, they I set him up. I they just like Hannah and Mary Tad set him up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it definitely did. But I think just the fact that, you know, it started out with this concern that a white man was the victim. Then it became clear that it was wrapped up in all these other questions about sort of race and sex and violence. Once it became this media sensation, you know, it just opened up this other sort of window onto sort of, you know, adultery and violence and all these things within the black community. And that made it you know, this other kind of fodder. And then, of course, when they saw Wilson, that touched off this whole other anxiety that, you know, ended up making this become, you know, one of these sort of, you know, sensational cases that just, it went on for months. I was shocked at that myself. Most cases during the time wrapped up anywhere between a a week and a month. But, I mean, there was real back and forth. There was real investigation. There were attorneys attached to, you know, each of the suspects. You know, (laughs) Yeah, it really was crazy. The cases, the jury, the judges weighed in. I mean, you know, it 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 touched a nerve, I think, around all of these issues in a way that kept folks occupied and reading about it that went on for months. Let's talk about Hannah uh, Mary Tabs and her sexuality. Um, That is one of the things that is brought up in the story, and that is something that we don't really hear about uh, about black women and their sexuality. Um, and their no. needs, if you will, um, right, and cheating right. on their husband. Um, and no. so this woman, I would no, think, almost, did she have two lovers? Was Wilson her lover and and uh, Gaines her lover? Uh, talk to the audience it about this. It was a question. I, so I had some questions about those things. I could never sort of determine definitively if she had something going on with Wilson. I think more than anything else, um, you know, folks described him as being a little bit slow, um, perhaps not so savvy. So I think that she was just able to sort of intimidate and manipulate him. But with respect to her sexuality, right, so one of the things that sort of shocked me about this case is that most of the history we have on black women at this time period 
talks about black women and, and what um, esteemed historian Darlene Clark Hine has called a, a culture of dissemblance. And what that means is black women tended to sort of conceal their sexuality and their sensuality as a way to guard against sexual assault. Remember, this is a time here where black women don't have a lot of justice. You know, the same time that you have lynching going on, you know, black women are victimized by that as well. You also have these sort of endemic rapes, right? This is what's driving a lot of these women out of the South and migrating north earlier. So this is all happening even before the Great Migration. And so for historians, because of those phenomena, we don't usually have a lot of information about black women's sexuality outside of, you know, fears about rape or sexual assault because um, they were always sort of concealing it. So her case kind of opened up this whole other window onto black women engaging in sex because for, for pleasure's sake. And so yeah, I mean, she had power. Yeah, right. She had power, and usually black women are victims, and like you said, right. they're trying to conceal. And, you know, I, and also you bring up the issue of domestic violence within the home between uh-huh. African-Americans, uh-huh. husband and wife. That's the issue. Right. So you have the woman worried about being outside, being raped and, and, and attacked by white uh, men, and then you have them worried uh-huh. about going home, you know, to that because of all different types of issues, why domestic violence happens. And But this woman, exactly. she had a husband, no. and then right. she had a lover. I mean, definitely, definitively, right. this man was constantly being seen with her. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the interesting thing is that... Um, uh, he was light-skinned, they believe, like they couldn't tell, you know, whether he was white right. or black. Finally, it was determined that he was black, this torso, uh-huh. um, and uh-huh. that uh, with her also, you don't know. So then, um, and then the guy had his clothes. Now, this is the clincher. Listen to this, audience. The man had his clothes in her house where she lived with her husband. Yes. <laughs> wow. Right. Wow. Right. Really? Would right. you let your wife have her lover's clothes in her in your house? Right. I mean, this is so, crazy. So right, so this is right. This is a whole different kind of window onto black sexuality at this moment that I was not expecting or necessarily prepared for. Because when I first found out during the course of the investigation, right, once you know it's clear that she's involved, it's clear that she had a relationship with the victim. Um, police, you know, searched their home. It turns out that, you know, it's like this is the place where he actually killed, and they find his personal items there, his clothes, his belongings. So I was like, wait, is he living in the house with them? I entertained every conceivable thing at that point. Maybe they were engaged in some sort of threesome. You know, I was I was blown away by that. So, you know, this idea about sort of cheating men, you know, became kind of called into question. Um, but I found out that her husband had been in the Civil War. And when I looked up his Civil War records, um, after he passed, she actually applied for a, a pension for him. And in that, it describes where he was injured in the in the groin and mm-hmm. ruptured there. And so once that, you know, I realized that, okay, maybe this is why they must have had some kind of really candid arrangement around yeah. know, they're married on one hand, but that she had these sexual needs. And so he kind of accepted, in some respects, this young man in their life. Um, so I was astonished at that. But the other piece I wanted to point out, when you're talking about domestic violence, you're absolutely right. Black women kind of were getting it from all ends. But what makes Hannah Mary Tab so unique is that she seemed to be doing a lot of the beating in the scenario. 
I mean, she was she was supposedly might have murdered other people in other areas, not just in the Philadelphia area, supposedly. And also she had a niece, which we don't know if it's her daughter, who was also right. a mulatto. Right. Okay, so there's right. there's a mulatto right. that maybe she killed her. So all through the story up until a certain point, we're thinking that, you know, the niece has been killed. It's it's, you know, hinted that Maybe Hannah did that because it seemed as though right. the men were afraid of her. It, it yes, was a really weird uh, thing. She so she, one of the right. So one of the things I try to talk about and and really understanding this moment is sort of how how someone develops this skill set to sort of beat and brutalize folks in this way, right? And I mean, she clearly had you know her community on check. She had her household, you know, on lock. I mean, she in part really relied on violence as a tactic that gave her this sort of freedom and independence that I don't think many black women were enjoying, or I can't say definitively um, that they were. She she was extraordinary. But I want to say one thing about, too, this, the use of the term mulatto, right? So on one hand, we, we use it to sort of understand, like, folks who are mixed race, right? One parent is presumably yes. identified as black, one's presumably as white. In this time period, they use it to describe that, but it's also a way to describe people in terms of complexion or how they look. So, yes, for, you know, so you don't know for sure. Point, you don't know for sure kind of what their racial background is. So the niece is this, the quote unquote niece is described as a mulatto, but they also describe her as being incredibly light skinned with really straight hair and all the rest. So it's possible that she did have some sort of, you know, one of her, you know, whoever the father was, was a white man or may have been one of these really, really light complexion African-Americans also. And since there was some question about whether or not, you know, Tabs was herself, you know, a mulatto in some fashion, you know, it's difficult to discern sort of right some based of those on the words are. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Now let's talk about this uh, prison um, industrial complex issue. Um, okay. You know, back in the back then, um, we don't. I mean, I don't think people realize uh, the process of uh, incarceration for African Americans. I mean, people could be uh, taken. Like, you want to say stop and frisk? <laughs> that was already happening. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, exactly. Stop and frisk was already happening um, at, at that time without having a law uh-huh. about it. And as mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier, um, they were a lot more women in the prisons um, than men. I think today, coming to today, that's an issue people don't seem to talk about. We're talking about the black man. And there's no, I'm not going to try yeah. to lessen that story of the black male being incarcerated. But trust, right. there are many, many African-American women in the jail today that are being right. stopped and frisked as we can talk, you know, mm-hmm. we want to do Sandra Bland or whatever you want to bring, whoever name you want to bring right. up. But mm-hmm. it's not like it's it's a small amount. I don't want the public to get that in their head that, oh, there's all these black men. Oh, yeah, sometimes there's a black woman. No, that's not the case. And I think that's a myth, you know, that um, there are only a small amount of African-American women being incarcerated. I mean, the numbers have right. increased exponentially over the years. No, they have. And so, and so here's where... So anyway, I agree with you. This is like exposing this issue is not to sort of um, diminish the plight of black men, not in the least, right? No, not so, in the least, yeah. 
Um, because it's true, they are, you know, horrendously and disproportionately incarcerated and targeted. Now, one of the things that I want to sort of clarify with respect to the numbers. So numbers-wise, there are more black men incarcerated than black women. But yes. in terms of the disproportionality, black women are actually more disproportionately represented in prison than black men, which means they make up more of the women incarcerated than, than any of the groups. Mm-hmm. But it's actually not. So that's what I mean when I say sort of disproportionality. And they have been, and it's been that way for almost since the beginning. So, for example, in the turn of the century in the South, where black men accounted for 70% of, of all men in prison, you have black women accounted for 86% of all women in prison. Wow. So this is what I do when I say disproportionality. And one of the things that contributes to that is their concentration, particularly in the North, in domestic service. This is sort of like, I call it kind of like the domestic service to prison pipeline because they're confined to this. 90% of black women in Philadelphia are working as domestic servants, you know, predominantly in white homes. So whenever something goes missing, right, whether real or imagined, white folks accuse black women, the servants in the house, once they get before a white judge or all-white jury and the white folks are accused of them, they get convicted at a higher rate more than any other group in the city. So in the mm. early part of the 19th century, you had something like 70% of black women who end up in criminal court in Philadelphia get convicted. Wow. So this is how they get disproportionately represented. So that's at this period, but that disproportionality has existed from the, for almost as long as we've been counting. Right, right. Well, let's talk. We only have about five more minutes. I want to talk about. Sure. Uh, wow, well, I don't want to give away the whole thing, but just in terms of what does it mean? Okay, let me. What does it mean to be a woman? You know, how do you carry yourself? How do you speak to others? How do you know? Uh, Hannah uh, Mary Tabs um, had many aliases, and we were presenting her, you know, as a violent woman, but she was also very conniving and could be very demure, if you will. Yes. Yes. I mean, she. So what? What I was. What I was sort of fascinated by was her ability to navigate in between sort of black and white worlds, right? So on one hand, she's this all-around tough customer in the black community. She knows what she can get away with. Um, she knows that black people do not have access to equitable justice or police protection, and so. She, this is why she gets away with all the violence that she commits in the black community for so long. That said, she also was very well aware that, you know, the minute she stepped out of line or did anything like that in the white community, there'd be real consequences. And so she carries herself completely differently in that respect. She acts really demure. She doesn't look white people in the eye. She emphasizes her southerness because I think she taps into this kind of racist nostalgia that a lot of folks have for this period, like, you know, before um, emancipation, right? They imagined And she had very good jobs. Yeah. She did a great job. She had excellent jobs and very high houses, too. Right, right. She she had excellent jobs. She worked for attorneys, for businesses. And, you know, she had good jobs. And and by all accounts, she never had any incident in any of them. But she knew how to sort of play white folks in that respect, so that she's able to kind of manipulate employers, but also the justice system themselves. You know, she, yeah. she knows what they want and what they're after, and she plays into that in a way that, I don't. I guess I don't want to give it all away, but it works out to her benefit. Yeah, very yeah. Savvy. 
Well, I, I thank you for writing the book. I thank you for taking the time to, you know, research. How long did it take you to write the book, actually? How long did you to do all the research and everything? <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, so I don't want to scare folks who are out there working and writing, but so it probably took almost almost eight years. Wow. Now, I'll say yeah. that in between that time, I, I did become a mom, and so that slowed <laughs> me down for a while, right? So for a while, research and production definitely slowed. Um, yes. <laughs> but... But, um, it, you know, historical research, I mean, you know, I was searching for needles in a haystack. You know, at one point she lied about where she was from. I was spinning mm-hmm. my wheels in Virginia for for months before I realized that she was actually from Maryland. So, mm, yeah, yeah. It was a real change. Yeah, let's not, let's not, let's not uh, discourage anybody who wants right. to do something like right. this. It, it's possible, you know, it is possible. I'm going to be giving away a copy of your book, so I encourage people to follow me at Joy Keys. Uh, on Twitter or become a fan on Facebook or check me out on Instagram so that maybe you can win a copy of of Callie's book. And uh, again, thank you so much for writing the book and shedding a light on the difference of African-American women, um, you know, back in the 1800s. I wish you much success with this this book and uh, hope things go well. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really a, a treat. Thank you so much, Joy. Thank you so much for calling in, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Awesome. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for for listening today to uh, me speaking with uh, Dr. Callie uh, Gross about her book, uh, Hannah Mary Tabs and the Disembodied Torso. Yes, very odd title, but I think it's worth a read, almost like a soap opera, um, very interesting for the time, gives a different light on African-American women and also uh, African-American men, I believe, So check it out or win a copy. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Hello? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.